Greetings, music makers, and welcome to the Music Together podcast, where we discuss topics about music making and learning that we hope inspire you to, well, make music and learn. I'm Christopher Chiari, but you can call me Chris. I'm joined by my co-host, the notorious GDS, Gareth Dylan Smith, but you can call him... Please call me Gareth. In this episode, Gareth and I talk with James Deakle, the artist in residence at Purdue University's Black Cultural Center. We at Music Together want to honor our Black colleagues throughout the year, not just during February as Black History Month. So we discussed his work as a Black person in predominantly white spaces, as well as racial trauma and the healing power that comes from musical experiences. James grew up in Statesboro, Georgia. He attended Florida Agricultural Mechanical University in Tallahassee, Winthrop University in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and now the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He was also involved in the Atlanta Music Project and El Sistema program. At Purdue, he directs the Black Voices of Inspiration Choir and the Purdue Express, a group he founded in 2016. He's a member of Phi Mu Alpha Symphonia Fraternity of America, ACDA, NAFME, and the Georgia Music Industry Association. So without further ado, let's get to the podcast. Welcome, James, to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. You know, it's it's interesting to hear people read your life to you. <laughs> so I'm going to be talking about the Purdue Express with you, which you read in the introduction of, of me. So that was a group I started here at Purdue. Basically, um, at the time, the diversity and inclusion office was really heavily managed by uh, the provost. And so uh, there was an initiative or a call to try and address some of the diversity issues that Purdue was seeing. And that was the recruitment of underrepresented minority students. And so um, when I was an undergraduate at FAMU, I was a part of a recruitment group called the FAMU Connection. And we traveled around the country uh, recruiting and telling the story of FAMU in a very fun, interactive way with popular music and interweaving dancing and a lot of popular music themes. Uh, into the show. And so I brought that idea to Purdue when they awarded it. So that's how the group was started. So I really wanted to talk about how popular music is such a force as it relates to uh, being able to um, touch other people. People can relate to it. I mean, that's not to say that the other musics that we talk about and study in academic music aren't uh, aren't meaningful. It's just popular music has a way to resonate across uh, many different cultures and dynamics. And um, that group has been very successful because of it. Yeah. And hope uh, I had the distinct honor of having them open up a show for my one That's person, right. my one person research autoethnography. So they were that is amazing. Right. You, you, you all sang from the greatest showman. Um, what was the name of that song? This is it. This is me. This is oh, me. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so that that I mean, I'm all about popular music and hopefully a little later we could talk about when I went to the to the at me conference. So it was it was it was a fun experience. <laughs> so, James, how does uh, how does music play a role in your day? Um, Music plays a big role in my day because I'm constantly trying to find, let's just say, a gap uh, in the students day to influence them with music. Um, our students, my choir is primarily composed of scientific 
students. Uh, let's say that they, they love music, but they spend most of their day in the heavy science world. I have many engineering students, uh, uh, students that. That's the, sorry, sorry, that's the Purdue uh, environment, right? Yeah. Very high polytechnic environment. Very, very technical. So, so I have, I, I have an interest in balance. Um, I can't just put anything in front of the students. Uh, because they're looking at this time with me as a time to of a reprieve in some sorts. They they need to they need to recharge. They need to feel better. They they need to unpack organic chemistry. Uh, so I spend a lot of time rummaging Facebook, seeing what others are doing. Uh, Facebook is I call it I mean, Facebook or YouTube University. Those are the two two uh, places where I I go to just see what others are doing. Uh, I have lots of choir director friends around the country. That like to post. I'm not big on posting things. I don't, I'm just kind of a private person, but I, I do like to just wander and see what other people are posting and go to YouTube and check out what various choirs are doing to see if this is something that I think might work well um, in my environment. So I, I do that. I try to practice. I try to I try to practice conducting and piano and uh, those things from time to time, um, as well as just, uh, I need to get back into songwriting. It seemed like once I got married and had kids, uh, songwriting beca- kind of became a chore. <laughs> it's like I do it when somebody requests me or asks me to do something, but uh, I used to write a lot of songs. And, and um, you know, so that's how music is kind of playing a role right now. And uh, I have another job as a worship director here in town. So that takes up quite a bit of time as well. And I'm planning the worship services. And so, uh, yeah, music is, is a constant, I would say. It's interesting. Uh, you mentioned, you know, being a, being a parent. I mean, I, I, I'm playing less music now that I'm a parent. Um, but it's, but it's kind of, it's always interesting to me what, what kind of takes priority. Like I have to do music. Uh, I practice less, but I practice with kind of such, I don't know when I do get to practice, like it, I just, I love it. I, I love it with a kind of renewed sense of now's the chance I've got to practice. Um, another question for you. How did you get to where you are now uh, in music ed? Or how did you get to where you are now through music ed, I guess? Oh, good one. Uh, well, I was always, well, let me, let me back up. My, my father and mother, but my father, especially, he was he he loved music. I think he loves music more than me uh, because he's the guy that watches The Voice, America. I, I mean, he's, you know, and I don't watch any of those. Shows. I mean, to be honest with you, I, it's just not something that moves me. Um, and um, but uh, he gave me early exposure to music. I mean, he took us to band festivals, the high school band festivals. And, and the early exposure made me have a desire to take up saxophone in the school band. And I started piano lessons at seven and sang in the choir. And, you know, I just had a rich beginning as it relates to music and music in school. And so when I got to high school, I was a basketball player and um, music and basketball began to conflict. And I wrote, I did an album in 2000, back in the 2000s, let's just say that. And I talk about this whole situation. And, um, you know, I started getting invitations to honor band and these things. And I had basketball games and it became problematic. And so I ended up having to make a choice to quit basketball because I was a good basketball player too. And um, I, when I made, when I made that choice to quit basketball, music, music just opened up the world of, all right, so now I think I'm going to commit my life to music. 
And so I needed to figure out what am I going to do? Um, and that's when music and going to college for music became a, a thought for me. And so I was probably, I was in the 10th grade at that moment. And that's when it all, the, the light bulb turned on. And so I, I remember going to my piano teacher talking about going to music. And of course I wanted to go to Berkeley. Berkeley was the school. And when I first started looking at music, it was like, I'm going to Berkeley. And my teacher convinced me that, you know, if you're going to get a degree in music, get a degree in music education. And, uh, and at the time, you know, I couldn't understand what he was suggesting. But his point was, you don't need a degree to perform. Uh, you, 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 you know, if you commit it and you love it, you know, continue to pursue your passion and, and doors are open. But if you really want the opportunity to do music as a career, uh, music education may be a great door to open up that opportunity. And I'm so glad that I listened to him because though I've had extensive performance, music has music education has pro, uh, allowed me, my only career has been music. Uh, and that's primarily because music ed has been that foundational aspect for me to sustain living um, while performing and doing church and taking, you know, you get the random phone call, can you go on this tour and that sort of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, that that flips the narrative of it, it, those who can't do teach and it totally blows that out of the water because I love how your mentor said, if you want to do music for your life, you should do music ed because you get to do music. And that's something that a lot of music teachers that I know have um uh, you know, they they feel they don't have time to do music. And mm. and I usually tell them that's because you haven't made the time or you haven't made that a priority and you can yeah. make that a priority. You can be making music with your students. There's nothing wrong with that. There's yeah. beautiful and, you things know, let, with that. Let me add something to what you just said, Chris. And, you know, here's the secret weapon of, of being a music teacher, too. I never feel that I don't know what's hot. Like I could go in the studio right now with with a student and we can probably craft something that people would like just because of the relationships that music ed give me with students who are growing up at a different time than maybe when my time was hot. Right. You know, as a mid 30s adult, uh, the things that I want to talk about are probably not the things that are in the top 40, but because I have relationships with students. Uh, I can go in and write songs with them and we can produce projects together. And so you're right to that point. I I always and I love that when I go to conferences and I meet middle aged people who are still creating amazing I feel seen. music. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, they're 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 creating amazing music and it's because it, it really transcends time when you're working with students of various generations and. And that sort of thing. So, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Well, I want to commend you, uh, James, because you're listening to your students. And I think that that's that speaks very loudly, something that our listeners can be reminded of that, hey, um, James feels connected to music because he's listening to his students. And that's that's yeah. awesome. And so speaking of students and music, what was your favorite way to make music when you were young? Ooh, let's see. <laughs> I've always loved making music in church, but uh, I, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to say the music ed, and I know who are, people listening are gonna shake their head. I loved marching band. <laughs> I loved marching band. Uh, it was it was oh, it was so much fun. Uh, just 
Oh, the the going to the competitions. I mean, I was the band head. Uh, I mean, I didn't have YouTube to go and listen to tapes all day when I was coming up. But uh, I, I will say that uh, marching band was fun. Outside of church, marching band would probably. <laughs> I, I've got I've got to share a little quick story. You said you love creating music in church, and um, when I was in junior high, eighth grade, I went to my my music pastor and I said I want to sing "His Eyes on the Sparrow" because I saw Lauren Hill do it. Yeah, <laughs> and so they set up this wonderful performance that I got to open this big event, and that was the day my voice cracked for the first time. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I completely hear you because music at church was one of my favorite ways to. Well, thank you for get, letting us get to know you a little bit. Let's go ahead and uh, chat about. Um, the work that you're doing as a, a black person with black students uh, about yeah. black music. And so um, you kind of told us a little bit about what you do as an artist in residence at the Black Cultural Center. Um, would you tell us a little bit more about the Black Voice of Inspiration, the Purdue Express, and what it's like working at a predominantly white institution? Um, how much, like, because uh, Black and African American students only make up what about three percent of Purdue students? If 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 that, we're we're yeah. being very liberal in that. Uh, uh, let's say out of of over forty thousand students, you're looking at about fifteen hundred um, students that identify as Black. Let's say, um, and um, but to 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 dive into what you're what you're asking. This job has been the best job I could have ever asked for as a black music educator, because um, before this job, I'm going to be totally transparent. I was largely unaware of the cultural input and impact of black music. Um, I knew what I knew. I knew what I've experienced. Uh, but as far as going further and looking deeper into what have black people contributed, what has what have African-Americans contributed to the landscape of music? This job put me in position to learn and, and begin to to seek answers to that question. Um, so as the choir director, this is the first time I've been in a choir situation where my concert is to be composed of music written by African-American writers, arrangers. Uh, and that was a challenge at first, right? Because when you when you study informal music ed circles, you, you, you may or may not have a lot of access to these people. And so you have to go dig into find out, well, who are these people and what are the music they create? And, and I had that opportunity. Uh, the choir was created, uh, out of the movement in the late 60s, uh, the Black Cultural Center uh, came out of a student protest movement here on Purdue's campus. Uh, they, they wanted a space where their, their culture could live, where they could be themselves unapologetically. And uh, they successfully created this movement. And in the early 70s, uh, the choir came was, was one of the first uh, um, things to be birthed out of this Black Cultural Center. And... Um, uh, a, a, a discovery when I first started working here was that Robert Ray was the first director of this choir, uh, the Black Voices of Inspiration. He was a student at the University of Illinois. 
And they brought him over because University of Illinois started the black course around the same time. And they. Oh, well, Robert Ray is a, a very acclaimed um, uh, music pedagogue, I would say, I would say in, in, in music education at this point, he's a, a choir director, writer. Uh, he his one of his most famous uh, works is the Gospel Mass. Uh, that that's very popular. So uh, he, but he was a student at the time when he came over and helped produce start their choir here. Uh, and um, basically the choir was, was a social outlet. I mean, back in that day, uh, choir was big, especially in the, in the black circles. Uh, it was a way people commune. I mean, this was pre-technology, you know, before this, I've talked to alumni and they said they would go home every weekend. Uh, so black students would come here and do their classes. As soon as they were out of class on Friday, they would go back to Gary or Indianapolis. So this was that was common in those times because this wasn't an environment that that many outside of the athletes, uh, many of the, the black students didn't. They just didn't like being on campus. And then the Black Cultural Center came up and they had the choir and they were able to, to, to just really make campus much more uh, affirming. Uh, and so. I I came in out of that tradition. And so it was challenging because I had to figure out, okay, how do I how do I as a choir director position this choir in a way where I can affirm black culture, but also make it something that the academic community sees as uh meaningful. Um and, and what I mean by that is, unfortunately, you know, academics, man, we we're we're brutal. We we we're very judgmental. I mean, sometimes, I mean, you know, well-intentioned, <laughs> well-intentioned music is sometimes seen as a waste of time, you know. And so, I was trying to figure out how to to bridge that gap. And so, my my ideal was to to try to approach the choir from a standpoint of how can we use a choir to really bring musics that aren't traditionally in the choir lane into the conversation. So I brought, we bring, we sing Prince, we sing Bob Marley, we sing uh, standard core rep that's arranged by, by black or African-American composers. Uh, and, and so that's what I've been doing for the last five and a half years. And, um, uh, it's worked well. We we've a lot of doors have opened uh, from opening it up. When I arrived, that the choir primarily sang gospel music, and we still sing a lot of gospel music. Uh, the whole second half of my concerts are always gospel. We go to church. We go to church in the second half. Uh, second half of the concert, but uh, but singing, bringing in some of the other musical taste and elements have opened up opportunities to perform in festivals that are more secular. Um, and so we we the choir has um has really been active in the Lafayette Indiana community. Um, now transitioning to Purdue Express, um, again I explained earlier how that group came to be here at Purdue. Uh, what I love about that group is it's it's a smaller group, and our target audience is potential students at uh, potential students to the university, and so we don't perform for music audiences. We, we perform for schools. We we walk into a school and it's, the whole school is in the auditorium, the whole uh, all of the 12th graders. And so that gives us the opportunity to not be so concerned about, you know, intonation and tone and balance. Now, those things are very important to me, but that's not what I'm thinking 
when I give them the pep talk before they go out and perform. I'm going, you get, I want this place to be, the energy of, of this auditorium to be on a, a thousand when you finish performing. So I get to approach it from a more entertainment um, point of view. And I love that. I, I think that's, you know, I hope we get a chance to talk about, you know, just what makes me, I feel, a, 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 a a disciple for change in music ed because I, I really want to bring a different energy to this space. Um, uh, I think we're too serious about things that don't really have a great effect on what music does in people's lives. And Purdue Express is, is an indicator of that. When we sang This Is Me and to see a parent crying, not because, <laughs> I mean, it, you know, not because we sang it so great, but just because that song touched them they were in this moment where they're thinking about their kid going to school and we're, we're dealing with this song that really gets into a person coming to a place in their life where they can accept themselves for who they are. And ah, oh, those are the moments that, that make it special to me. So, yeah. And it's uh, the moments that make it really special for your students. Um, I, uh, again, I got to see your students perform. This is me. Um, and they set it up for the question that I was asking, who am I? Well, I am mm-hmm. what I am. And it was such a great, beautiful thing um, where I wanted to to have, um, I wanted to, uh, um, uh, what was so beautiful is to see, to actually be able to pep talk them myself, um, where I was like, you are who you are, and this is going to be awesome. And I can't wait for you to prepare the audience to hear the story that I wanted to tell. Um, yeah. and so you're talking about like this, uh, this parents crying when they get to hear that it's such an empowering moment. And, um, how do you think you use black music with your students to empower them through that? Mm. That's great. Well, at Purdue, I think it's just a breath of fresh air. Um, because I think students are trying to find a place where they can see themselves. And the fact that, you know, here's a space where we're intentionally uh, allowing their voices to be heard through the music that they listen to when they're walking around. I mean, you know, anybody on the college campus sees that the majority of the students have headphones in going from place to place. And they're either listening to music or podcasts or something that just fills them up. And so for them to have a space where they can experience it, where they can be a part of contributing to that experience, uh, I think it's very meaningful. So uh, I I solicit their suggestions uh, when we're building the show. You know, a lot of times I, I, I say, hey, these are some songs that I've selected and I'm thinking about. What are your thoughts? And, um, you know, they give me great feedback. And um, and um, we we typically go through this recursive process for about a month. <laughs> of, uh, of of just going back and forth between, hey, you know, how how well do I think we could sing it as well as how well does it speak to the students that are going to sing it? And when we land on something, uh, it's a beautiful thing to to uh, to witness unfold. Mm-hmm. How do you think um, that idea could be translated to like a K-12, uh, let's say a middle school or high school choir that has... Uh, uh, maybe ten percent uh, black students, but mostly, let's say, seventy percent white and twenty percent uh, uh, making up of people not black or white. That that's the question I've been waiting on, right there. 
because yeah. I just said something about the disciple for change. Um, when I first got to Purdue, I remember talking to a colleague and he blew my mind. Uh, I was a little upset because I watched his choir perform and I was like, oh, my God, my choir is just we, we, we're just not <laughs> like like I mean, it was just a different level of engagement that I saw from the choir. And it was more what I was used to seeing in the music ed world. And I remember talking to him about it. And he said to me, he said, James, you know, five percent of your students are going to go on to have a career in music. He said, so you got to make a decision. Are you going to serve the five percent or are you going to serve the ninety five percent? That changed everything uh, as far as the music ed for me, because what you're saying is who who are we creating experiences for in our classroom? Are we trying to or do we want the students to, to walk our path and become professional music educators or that sort of thing? And I think we need to make sure that we provide our students that lane if that's what they want to do. Uh, that's what a responsible educator would do. But 95% of your students have no desire to go study uh, figure bass. And um, <laughs> and so how much time should we spend preparing them for that type of path uh, in our music class? I don't think we should spend that much time doing that. I think we need to give them valuable experiences that help them go through what they're navigating currently. Right now, because there those moments, even though they will never be able to relive them, they may be moments that they struggle to 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 shift for many years to come. I mean, we we all have traumas in our life. And um, and the reality is, if we can help people navigate those moments, college, uh, uh, K through 12 with music in, in, in that time, uh, I think we're doing something beneficial to students. Yeah, there's some things that I heard you talk about. And so, like, the initial question is, um, how can maybe, like, race and music kind of aid each other or impact each other? But you said that students are going through a lot of different traumas. Um, I know that you're interested in looking at trauma and how uh, that can be dealt with with music or um, that type of thing. So um, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about what you're thinking about the ideas of music, trauma, and race, and how they kind of intersect? Sure. Well, for me, I wasn't always interested in trauma, maybe because I didn't understand that what, what, what trauma really deals with. And, and again, I've used the word experience a lot. And, and, and once I figured out that, you know, trauma is really just how we go deal with experiences. Uh, and music is all about experience. Uh, I was thinking last night, you know, life informs music and music helps us understand our experiences. <laughs> so they so when you say how does how does it all work together? There it is. For me, life informs what we end up, we end up creating through musical encounters. However, we define that. Uh, but something in life stimulated us to put that in some musical format. And then we ultimately, many of us as professionals, we take those musical encounters that we create and we share those experiences with other people. And, and, and through that shared experience, it, it, it helps other people make sense of what they're going through. That's why some people have their favorite song when they go through a breakup or a betrayal or a loss or a 
hard experience. My parents lost their job or they're going through a divorce or an identity crisis or whatever you want to call it. So it, it really just comes down to experience um, and and how music has a, the impact that it does on helping people make meaning of their experiences as well as work through experiences. Um, and so that that's why the trauma you know, that's a scary word sometimes when you say it, what, you know, somebody else may hear you and they oh, <laughs> you know, it, it just, it just immediately sometimes sparks a like, but, but really, no, I just want to study the experience of music. Now, let me talk about race very quick. Racial experience is something that as an American, you're going to deal with and face and not just American, but because we're here in the United States, everybody has racialized experiences. Um, we talked about Purdue. Students arrive on campus and they quickly realize I'm in a large minority here. Uh, and th- that means a lot of people around may not understand why I talk the way I talk, why I dress the way I dress, why I <laughs> why I eat the foods I eat. Uh, you know, all of these things. And, and once they get in your mind can start creating traumatic moments. Uh, you raised your hand in class and you asked the teacher something and, every, and you notice the energy of the room shift. <laughs> um, because your question evoked that response out of your classmates or your peers and, and it affects you. So, um, you know, though race, 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 the intersection of race in our lives is something we can't avoid because our it's just too ingrained in the American way of life and culture. So that's where the race enters in for me. And then being black, being often the minority in the space, uh, it, it really just makes me um, say, well, you know, why not? I mean, when I first started my PhD, the last thing I wanted to do was it, talk about race because I felt like that's what everybody expected me to do, you know, being a minority in the space. But once I got in the space and saw who was doing all of the talking and then seeing the critiques of those talking about myself and my experience, you kind of feel like, well, I got to talk. <laughs> it's like me and Gareth right now talking about you and you're just sitting there listening and watching. I mean, eventually it's like, well, that's not right. Well, I don't see it like that. Yeah. Well, that didn't kind of, that's not how I would say it. You know, so mm-hmm. you end up finding yourself in the conversation, whether you want to or not. Yeah. Uh, I, for for me, uh, I had a very similar experience. Uh, of I never wanted to talk about race in, in academia or ever, <laughs> to be honest. And um, it's just, it's really interesting how it wasn't until I heard a bunch of people talking about me in ways that I didn't feel were right. Like, I, not like they'd say, well, people of color experience this. I'm like, that's not how I experienced it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, I know. yeah. Um, you know, uh, it'd be interesting uh, to hear about how you feel some of the conversations in higher education, um, whether that's as a professional or as a doctoral student or master's student, um, or even uh, growing up before that, or as a professional, as a recording artist, a producer, um, how, how has, um, how has, uh, how do you navigate those spaces that are full of predominantly white people? Mm. You know, that, ooh, that is a great <laughs> question. 
The reality is I feel that my life's journey prepared me for the shoes that I feel. Let me let me let me explain it. I have a lot of privilege. Uh and how we define privilege in in America. My mom my mom has a PhD in psychology. Um I grew up in a small subs uh college town. I grew up in pre- predominantly white spaces. So you could say I've acculturated a lot of the norms of the space just in my upbringing. Uh one of the things that give I think gives me balance though is that I'm also the descendants of sharecroppers. And I worked on the field, I worked in the field and I and I have a wonderful relationship with my grandfather and his influence is tremendous on me. And so I I've been able to live in both sides of this spectrum. Um, so a lot of me being able to navigate this space is I grew up being the only, oh. um, go ahead. Oh, I was just wondering, you said both sides of the spectrum. What spectrum? Uh, the spectrum of black culture and black norms, as well as predominantly white culture and white norms. All right? right. Thank you. And uh, thank you for asking for that clarification. Um, so I, it's kind of like I'm a chameleon of sorts. I can go in this environment and totally understand everything that's being said, the, the hidden languages, the, the nuances. I can understand that stuff in the black cultural uh, paradigm or, or the black cultural experiences, as well as I can go into a predominantly white setting and understand many of those hidden uh, norms you know, certain ways of saying things, certain ways of positioning conversation. I can I can understand those nuances because I've been I've had a lot of time in both settings um, just through my upbringing. So that that's why I say I was I feel that I was prepared now specifically involving music. I'm learning. In the Ph.D. space that this is challenging. Uh, it's challenging because, you know, when you hang around, let me say, smart people, <laughs> uh, language takes a whole nother meaning. You can't say the word multicultural and not understand that, well, Deborah Bradley defined multicultural as this or or, or somebody. And, and so I'm, I'm learning those nuances because uh, I did not, you know, the word multicultural meant, hey, you know, there are various cultural uh, there are various cultures uh, encompassing a space. Well, not in music education. <laughs> Multicultural means this. Uh, when you make certain statements, it means something specifically. And so that is one of the challenges that I'm learning to navigate uh, in this PhD program, that words take on a whole new level of meaning. And you can't just say a term that may have a context outside of Music, ed, but it means something specific within the context of music. Yeah, it's fascinating. You talk about essentially what we call code switching, where you know how to you 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 act differently in a predominantly white context when you act differently in a predominantly black context, and um, a lot of people worry that they feel inauthentic when they do so. But to, it's really fascinating, um, not to generalize every black person's experience, but for you, 
you you're telling us that you grew up in multiple contexts so we have this new layer of 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 complexity um how do you feel uh do you feel any more or less authentic speaking certain ways uh that's 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 good uh i think as i get older and more mature yes but when but in everyday interaction no because i think effectiveness comes down to do we understand each other hmm. and for me i want to be understood i want to make sure that i understand you and you understand me right in in the interaction and if someone sees that as code switching okay but at the end of the day we we were able to come to whatever terms we needed to come to. So if I have to use certain language to get you to understand that there's a problem here or there's a situation here, I think by all means necessary we need to we need to get to that point, and and not so much me be so authentic that you miss the point. Uh, and I think that happens all the time in our society. We we're well intentioned. I mean, I'm reading articles all the time with a well intentioned uh, scholar, but. Does the reader accept the point? <laughs> like they may they may know it, but do they accept the point? And I think we we got to get to a place where we where we build capacity of, hey, you know what? Whether it's code switching or not, I understand this individual, and I think I can better relate to them. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Your idea of code switching is much more for for others rather than for yourself. Mm. Yeah, because, again, I think in your lived experience, you have to ask yourself, well, why do I do what I do? Mm. If, if if you call it code switches. So when you ask yourself that question, well, why do I do it? And I think for me, if I had to answer that question, it's to make sure that we understand each other. Like, like for me, if I'm in a different if I'm in a different setting, I, I, I still want to be understood. So yeah. <laughs> you just blew my names, James. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to return back to the the idea of trauma in music and especially specifically racialized trauma. Um, a lot of times, uh, a traumatic experience. I had a um, I had a friend who told me about his black trauma experience, where he was asked in the middle of third grade to tell us about his music, and he was the only black child in that class. And he felt completely singled out. We call that tokenization now. At least now I have words for that. But he said that that was such a traumatic experience. And it was fascinating um, that I find it fascinating that you you see uh, you're looking at trauma and music and race. And so um, uh, could you could you kind of expand a little bit about how then a music teacher might actually try to uh help heal a situation like that rather than um, perpetuate that, that um, trauma. Very, very good. I think it all starts with relationship. Um, So I was introduced to trauma through the work of uh, Resma Minicum. He's a body psychotherapist and he, he, his work is built on this notion of racism and race and issues of race lives in our bodies uh, he talks extensively about the lizard brain and how its function can override cognition. <laughs> and so when we talk about trauma, for most people, that that trigger is from the lizard brain. It, it, it's not something that you just cognitively think. 
it's in that moment of interaction, you it, it just affects you in a way and your body responds to it, whether that's flight, you know, freeze or, 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 or uh, fight, you know, you fight, freeze or flee. And and so when you talk about that specific example, you know, it starts with, well, you have you have to foster a relationship with that student where we can work through that. I caused this. And I'm going to accept that when I put you in this position to have this experience, I got to put myself in the position to say, I didn't want that for you. So now whatever you and I need to work through so you can understand that however you perceived my question, um, it was not intended to cause the harm that it caused. And I think that's hard on both sides, right? Because on one side, that teacher has to acknowledge that my actions cause this unintentional or intentional. All right. And then that student has to say, I have to be willing to accept that if the, if it wasn't intentional, I got to be able to accept that it wasn't intentional and I got to be willing to work through it. Because here's the thing, we're not going to prevent racial incidents. Like the one thing we all need to come to terms with, we're not going to prevent racialized incidents from happening. Because our perceptions are too ingrained and race is a part of that. It is, I mean, you know, your, 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 your first thought may be it was because it was be you're not going to prevent it. We got to work through the incidents, not tell ourselves we're going to prevent it. We're mm-hmm. not. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's interesting that uh, when you're talking, I'm thinking about my own trauma and the work that I did with my um, my performative autoethnography and realizing how much trauma was in my life and using music to reflect upon that trauma allowed me to one, create this beautiful performance, but two, work out some of my issues through both music and research, which was exciting. And so um, I'd ask, how can we um, be able to start focusing on healing uh, through music uh, healing that trauma, especially for students who, uh, for black students? You know, one word, creation. I mean, I mean, we, we got in music education, we got to spend less time on the great historical musical <laughs> artifacts that we spend a lot of time sharing with students. I mean, those are great. Um, but creating music is probably where we need to emphasize if we want to heal uh, what is your story um, as a as a, you know, a person who is going through like everybody is going through something, whether we call it trauma or not. Right. Everybody is going through life experiences that they're trying to deal with, unpack. Some people may, you know, one of the things I do is um, when people find out that I write music, they go, oh, I wrote something in my journal. And sometimes they share that with me and they, they they wonder what would it be like to make that a song? Hey, you know, there is music ed right there. People who keep active journals. Let's let's see what this would sound like. I mean, take this excerpt you wrote and let's see what 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 could this sound like? What feelings do you associate from a musical? From a place of music that uh, that that may help you represent that, whether it's body percussion, whether it's. You know, whatever, you know, what, how can we represent or make this manifest in 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 the guise of music? So creation um, and created creativity is where I think music is, has the opportunity to really 
mend traumatic experience. Yeah. Crying and pain, these aren't necessarily bad experiences when you look at life is continual. Uh, and something that happened to you yesterday, yesterday is gone. It's still affecting you today, <laughs> it, but, but it's gone. I can't go back and undo anything that happened yesterday. I can live through the effects until I really go through the pain uh, in myself. Uh, like you said, through journaling, through writing, through whatever, whatever means to uh, to do that. And music, we're, we're uniquely situated. We, 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 we can really impact that in schools. I was going to say, James, this is, thank you so much. This is uh, wonderful to hear you speak about these things. Um, there's a, a phrase popped into my head about emotional labor. Um, and I'm wondering, as, as music educators, music teachers, I think, um, I think as teachers generally, uh, people who aren't teachers maybe don't appreciate the kind of emotional load that comes with um, being in a room full of other emoting humans. Um, and I guess that's often very raw with music, or it can be. Uh, is, is there anything that you want to say about that? I mean, you said a lot already, but that's... Yeah, but I, I, love, I love the fact that you say that. You know, I think about the first time I went to a music studio and I saw the 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 rug, the ten thousand dollar rug, and the candles, and and I I didn't get it, you know, <laughs> you know, they look very different from the practice rooms that I was accustomed to, and I think that those elements are a part of the recording environment because I remember watching a session and watching this artist get to this level of vulnerability that was unreal. I mean, though they were living those words in that booth. I mean, it was it was painful to watch this person really just embody the words. And 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 I I remember being awestruck and I was like, oh my God, this is emotional labor. Like I I I mean, this is my first time hearing that term put that way. But when I think of emotional labor, that's what I'm thinking about. Like for a teacher in a space with students to affirm, to, to be there for students, you have to empathize. That's exhausting. And, you know, it, it is exhausting. And, and that's why I think we have to balance that. We have to balance it. I, I mean, one of the things I love about my relationship with Chris is we don't talk about music much. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, I think that may be why I don't watch American Idol. And so I, I'm just not the person who can do this all day, every day, and then go home and watch it for two or three more hours. Now, I watch what I need to watch to grow in the areas I need to grow in. But Chris and I talk about investing. <laughs> we talk about real estate. I talk about golf because we have to balance the emotional labor of the work that we do. If it's going to be meaningful, I mean, at the end of a concert, when you're performing for others, if you did it right, you're probably tired. I mean, you enjoyed it and you enjoyed the energy of the moment and seeing your impact on people, but you're also tired. I mean, you're you really had to take on a lot of themes, a lot of emotions, a lot of, you know, if you and and um, so, yeah, that that emotional labor. I mean, that's the way I see it when you when you say it the way you say it. So I'll leave it there. So, James, I heard you talk about the lizard brain. And one of the things that I've been thinking about is. Um, there's a lot of people who um, identify as white who have a very visceral reaction whenever race is brought up. And the lizard brain takes over 
and um, it's like the uh, the the meme is that you can't insult a white person as much as if you were to call them racist, and the trauma behind that insecurity is something that as educators we need to be able to to navigate if we want to um, accentuate and lift up uh, black people and black music and black culture. So how would you approach um, working with people who have experienced um, the the insecurity of not wanting to be seen as racist? Ooh, that, oh wow. That what you just asked is the reason that when we talk about developing a professional development conference or some sort of space, where we can begin to 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 approach that, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, in society, we now have a term called white fragility. And and that term now, you know, in colloquial summarization is, you know, don't make no excuses about how you feel about your racist behavior. And, 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 and you know, people sit on both sides. So is white fragility a real thing or is it not? The point is, when a human being has a visceral reaction to some type of stimulus, they are affected. I don't care if that was being at a PTO meeting and see a fistfight break out over some racialized incident. It may make you never want to talk about race again. I don't care what color you are, what you know, what background. That's what we talk. We're talking about the experience of I've seen race conversations go in a very dark place. I've seen racialized encounters create, you know, problems. So my visceral response, my body response is to run, is to 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 disengage, is is, you know what I'm saying? So people who feel that way, this is what I'm hearing in the question. People that hear this, they first got to decide, but am I helping by running or doing that? So now if I if I feel that not if, if I feel that running is not helping now, what am I willing to do? And what I'm saying is at some point we have to have music educators say, let's create a space where we don't have to run anymore. Um, but another part of, of another part of this is my brother in law, he's in the military. And and one of the things I love about when we talk is he 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 puts things in perspective for me that relate to so many things in life. And he says, you know, when he was a recruiter, he always told people, you know what you're signing up for, right? <laughs> and it's always interesting to hear the reactions that that they receive. You know, and his point is I have to help them understand that when you sign your name down on the sheet, you're signing up to be shot at, to be in highly activated situations. There's no need for you to show up <laughs> to basic training thinking they're preparing you for anything else. But to be highly activated mentally, physically, emotionally for the type of environment that you're getting ready to face. What I notice in music education is we don't talk about that reality, that emotional labor of the classroom. What we talk about is we need to be more culturally responsive. We need to be more we need to be more affirmative of our students culture. But what does that process really entail? Right. And, and and is it college's responsibility to really put them in some of those interact in, in, in those positions? 
to put them in uncomfortable settings, you know, or, or, or settings that are not normal to their everyday experience. And I think right now colleges are, for the most part, reluctant to do that. I mean, one of the one of one of the areas I'm looking at in particular for a dissertation, if I don't choose to continue with this trauma conversation, is black inclusion in 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 um in music ed. I mean, how many classes are do students experience black culture in as music teacher educators or as pre service teacher educators? Do they experience any classroom any music making experience in the classroom? And if so, what are they doing? Yeah, like pushing past that lizard brain experience to 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 develop empathy. Yes. And to say, you know, it's not good enough to just show up to the University of Illinois Black Choir's rehearsal. It's better to take it for a semester. That's it. Or and to yeah, yeah, go fully ahead. invest and have to yeah. fully invest. Take the music home, learn yeah. it. And yeah, then- invest yeah, that's our word. That's our word. Uh, it's, it's just that, it's that, no, but it's that, that idea of, of James Baldwin's going for broke and actually instead of just giving lip service and showing up that you are not just passively watching a rehearsal, that you're getting in that rehearsal, that you are getting to know the people singing on your right and on your left, that you are getting to experience mm-hmm. what that culture is. And that's why like uh, a study abroad is so important. <sighs> You know, um, my my friend Brent Talbot goes to Dubai uh, every few years, and he um, he tells me of these experiences like you've been talking about. It's not just music he's it's not just even relationships he's building. It's the experience of the culture that they have lived with for centuries and centuries that that he now has been um, as he would probably say, blessed to have been able to be a part of. And it's changed him fundamentally. And that's the awakening. That's how that's how we can walk alongside each other. Um, James, uh, one more area that I'd like to chat about is that oftentimes um, music education uh, and society in general uses what's called a deficit discourse or a deficit model for people of color, especially young, young black people um, and musicians and, and just uh, black people in general. And so um, how do you think approaching healing and trauma, uh, healing from trauma in music can help replace the deficit discourse into one of empowerment and highlighting counter narratives and stories that are about joy eventually and healing mm. and happiness mm. and success. That's, that's, that's challenging because we, we got to really unpack this one, Chris. Um, I feel that the reason why we look at deficit is because of our macro culture of a society. We live in a competitive, democratic society. And what that means is we're constantly comparing ourselves 
to the work of others, to the lives of others, to the successes of others. And we are constantly reminded of what we don't, what we haven't accomplished, what we haven't accomplished yet. And social media has shown to to just make this reality even more. <laughs> uh, it's intensified that reality. Mm-hmm. And um, so look, at, look just, at me on Facebook. I did all these things. And yeah. Then- and I have no ch- choice but to unpack. Well, how do I measure up to what you've done and what you've accomplished? So we are constantly fighting deficit. Right. In this competitive society, we live in a competitive society. And unfortunately, competition is all about saying somebody wins and somebody loses. So now when we go to the microculture level of a school or music class, how does that manifest? Well, we're constantly comparing ourselves. Whose music is more important? Why is it more important? Uh, You know, who, you know, those types of things are just... Just uh, prevalent. So when we talk about traumatic and healing, let me say that's the reason why we all need to understand that we have endured traumatic experiences. Many of them may be unconscious. I mean, I know many of my traumatic experiences were unconscious. Uh, I didn't see them as bad experiences when I was going through them. It was only when I read or I heard somebody talking, I go, oh, I went through something similar like that. And it, yeah, it, did, it was kind of painful. But but I just didn't, you know, you know, you recount it. And I think that's why sometimes when we look back at our lives, um, we have some of the relationships we have with former relatives and friends and stuff. Because we look back in 2020 and see it like, oh, my, you know, it, it's just a whole different experience to us then. Um, so what can music educators do? Well, one, we have to employ people to explore their own inner creativity. We can't say you got to learn these quarter notes and half notes and eighth notes and then work within that construct of these half notes, quarter notes, and eighth notes. That's great. And we need to do that. Uh, But there needs to be a time and space where we're doing something very different. Tell me something that you that you've been through in the last six months. But don't just tell me. Tell me in a way that'll make me remember it. Tell me in a way that that'll make me That'll make me really feel what you went through. And that's so how many you get times, cre- yeah. So many that's times, how you like, get people yeah. creative going. That's how you yeah. get people, you know, sell it to me. You know, I'm not. I mean, that's a terrible word, sell it to me. But at the same time, when I the first time I went in the music studio, that's when my life changed as far as being a music educator because I realized they didn't know what Pickety Thirds were. They didn't know my song form. That was the last thing that these people were trying to do in this studio. Everything they were trying to do was about creating a story that they knew people wanted to hear. They took a bad situation. They took a a great situation. And it was like, how do I make other people want to hear it? And that's that's where we work from. We work from. And so when you think about artists who've been able to sustain these amazing careers, it's really because they tell a story that people want to hear and they see themselves in it and they hear it and, 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 and it resonates. And we can do that as music educators. Let me hear your story, but don't just tell me the story. Don't just tell me, like if I was working with third graders, you your story may be, I hate making up my bed. All right, write a hook for me. 
make that beat, make the beat for me. <laughs> you know, whatever you, however you want to, however you want to approach it. But, but making a bed may be the most anguishing thing you're experiencing as a third grader, but you can make me want to hear you tell me how you don't like making up a bed and we can make it a hit in 2020 on YouTube. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you have a keyboard right there? Could you make it a hook right now? Hey, I don't. I don't have a keyboard in front you of me. You got your but, voice, but I do have. I do have my voice, and, and and if I was gonna make a hook, I could say, "Hanging with some music educators, hanging with some educators, talking about change, talking about change. How are we gonna achieve it? I didn't say achieve it, cause it's my song." Cause it's my song. See, there's a- <laughs> uh, see, see. It's just as easy as as parodying. Uh, Are you sleeping, a Frere Jaca, right? Uh, I just wanted to respond. Actually, I will. Before then, uh, I, that was fascinating hearing about working through trauma. Um, as a, my voice, as it were, is, is the drums. That's and um, and I, I'm, I'm often. Well, I'm always in someone's band. That's my experience. You know, I, I'm. It's very rarely my uh, experience that's being kind of vocalized or spoken about directly in a in a musical performance or a songwriting thing. But um, I and I work through if it's if it's trauma, I work through my experiences um, by practicing on my own by playing the drums alone. That that centers me in a way that nothing else, frankly, does. Um, and it's just by it's it's just it's being with the drums, I guess. But but also. Um, I, I've played with, I've lost count of how many songwriters I've been on gigs with and played shows with and rehearsed with. And there's something phenomenal about immersing myself in that person's song. My job in that moment is to, is to make the song better by being like, not get in the way of the song, somehow enhance the moment, let, and just be that feeling. And it's, it's insane how emotional, how deep, how big that is. Um, and all I'm doing is hitting things, but it's, uh, but it's uh, being part of that kind of shared experience is phenomenal. Um, I'm not quite sure what I'm trying to say, but I guess because hey, I'm never really the voice. I love way, it. But I, but I, I feel being part of that um, is, is, is an extraordinary yeah. experience. That's a, you know. Well, one of our slang terms to describe what you're saying when we're in a band setting is you're locked in. You know, when we when we when we all get locked in and we we I, I can glance over at you from the keyboard and I can feel you and you can feel me. We're locked in. Well, uh, after all that heavy hitting talk, James, let's go ahead and do what we call four four time. It's a very common time. Let me tell you, we're going to give you four rapid fire questions and then. Four questions that you can go a little bit deeper in. Are you ready? Sure. All right. Cats or dogs? Neither. <laughs> if I had to choose, I'd say dogs. All right. Favorite band or artist when you graduated high school? Uh, Kenneth Babyface Edmonds. Mm. No hesitation there. <laughs> Worst pizza topping? Anchovies. And if... <laughs> I love fish. Just... Mm. Pizza. Mm. Not on pizza. <laughs> if you could go, if you could get an all expense paid trip to anywhere for a week outside of COVID, Ooh. where would you go? Ooh, I need to take my wife to Hawaii. But if it was just on me, I would go to probably Phoenix, Arizona with my golf clubs 
and my wife, and we would just play golf, hang out. So thank you. Going a little deeper, there are four slightly deeper questions. Uh, what is the best book you've ever read about music, teaching, or learning, and why? The Music of Black Americans by Eileen Southern. Um, I learned about this book when I was uh, preparing for the job interview for this job I have currently. We talked earlier in the interview. This was the book that opened my eyes to just the contribution of the, of Black Americans and their music. I, I had no awareness of, you know, our contributions to techno and house music. And I mean, it's just a comprehensive foundation to build a lot of substance in as far as the musical contributions of Black people. So that's why I, I, it's, it's got to be my favorite. Thank you. Tell us about a teacher who profoundly influenced you? Uh, I'm going to mention Wimberly Ponder, my first piano teacher. I mentioned earlier how he had some of those conversations with me about driving my path, but I was I was extremely blessed. I would say privileged to have an African-American classically trained piano teacher in a small town of all places. Like this doesn't really exist in for a lot of people, but his direction uh set a foundation for me to be now a second year PhD student at a big 10 university. So, uh, man, you know, I, 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 he, he's amazing to me. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, if you could perform with anyone or by yourself, what would you perform where and for whom? Um, I would perform with Babyface. Um, when I was driving up here in a moving truck, I didn't know he was from Indianapolis. And I was driving on 65 and I saw that they wrote, they named a portion of the interstate after him. And I promise you, I'm not, I'm not the most, I don't cry a lot, but a tear almost dropped from my eyes. Cause I was, I was leaving everything I've ever known in Georgia in the South. I'm moving up and I see that the road I'm on is named after my favorite artist. And it was just, it was a moment of like, Oh my God, this is meant to be. (laughs) So I would perform with Babyface. Uh, We could perform anywhere. I would just love the, the, the trade songs that he's written and songs that I've written. And we just sit there and have a session. Thank you so much. Uh, Speaking of making music, tell us about the most awesome music making experience you've ever had or one of them you know and I you know and that's the thing I've had so many some of the artists I've had a chance to perform with and some of the places I've been able to even take my groups um it's been amazing but for me I'm gonna say uh back in 2003 what is it 2003 or 2004 I'm getting a little older now uh one of those years I had the opportunity to go to Addis, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and perform as a part of uh, a commemoration celebration for uh, Bob Marley. His family does it every year. They still do it. Uh, it's called Africa Unite. And we performed in the city square for over 200,000 people. And um, it was uh, it was transformative. The artists we performed with and um, and um, it, it was it was just a. It was an awe-inspiring experience to have that many people sitting there and just listening to the music. It was great. That's amazing. Thank you. And thank you so much, James, for joining us in this podcast. Um, and we just like to thank you for your time. Oh, yeah. Hey, thank you for having me. 
If you enjoyed this episode of the Music Together podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues. Don't forget to subscribe to Music Together podcasts and leave a comment on whichever platform you're listening on. Please tune in next week to the Back to School podcast where Beth and Chris chat with K-12 educators about the topic we discussed in this episode. If you'd like to give back and support our work, you can donate via our coffee accounts. That's coffee, K-O-F-I. If you'd like to be part of the Doing Music Together podcast, check out the Facebook group, visit doingmusictogether.com or tweet us at musictogether. That's music, the number two, together. Don't forget to tune in on the first and third Thursday of each month to hear our discussion of scholarly music topics that we hope can help you or others learn, be inspired and connect with other music makers. Today's episode was produced by Christopher Kayari. Original music was composed by me, Gareth Dillon-Smith, and our sound engineer was John Stapleton. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode of the Music Together podcast.